Thank you very much for reading, Lewis, and it's great to be with everyone. May I add my welcome to that of Paul's, and especially if you're visiting, visiting today and any who are here for John's baptism. Allow me to do this in prayer, and then we'll begin. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We thank you, our Father, that your Word is a spiritual Word, that is, it is the weapon and the means of action of your Spirit. We pray, therefore, that you would be at work powerfully by your Spirit, through your Word, in our hearts this morning. Amen. Please keep open your Bibles at the passage that Lewis read. We'll be referring to it in detail. It was one of the most memorable nights of my life. They were the words of the late Queen in 1985 in a BBC interview. She was referring to the wild celebrations that happened on the streets of London on the evening of the 8th of May, 1945. VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. After five long years of war, the Nazis finally surrendered to the Allies and the soldiers could finally lay down their weapons and they could be dancing in the streets. Princess Elizabeth at the time, 19, and her sister Margaret, aged 14, were given permission by the king to go out into the streets with the ordinary people incognito to celebrate. VE Day, 8th of May, 1945. But the reality is that the war was actually won almost a year before, on D-Day, the 6th of June, 1944. That was the moment, as you know, when the Allies landed on the beaches of, of Normandy. That was the decisive moment when the war was sealed and Hitler was defeated. The war was won on D-Day, but the battle kept on going. There was still fierce fighting as the doomed Nazi war machine uh, continued to oppose. There could be no laying down of weapons and dancing in the streets until a final surrender. This letter that we've been studying these past few months, Ephesians, is a letter about warfare. The war that is going on right now that each of us are involved in, whether we know it or not. A war that has already been won. D-Day has happened 2,000 years ago on Easter morning. God raised Jesus Christ to life as his son and his supreme ruler over the universe. That was the de decisive moment of victory over sin, death, and the devil. That was the turning po point in all of human history. That was D-Day, the day when God defeated Satan and enthroned his son. Chapter 1, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And of course, as we've been learning, his victory is not one that he enjoys alone. That was the magnificent truth of chapter 2, that all over the world and down the ages, the news of Jesus' victory has been going out. And that news, that gospel, that word of truth has been capturing people from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of Christ. His word has been entering into people's hearts and giving life where there was once death, giving us life if we're Christians this morning, who together wait for VE Day, Christ's return, 
when our weapons can finally be laid down and the dancing begin. That is God's plan that has been mapped out for us so wonderfully in Ephesians, the secret which through this gospel has finally been unveiled to us and to any who will hear. And where we are today in this cosmic history is that brief time between D-Day and VE Day. The news of the risen Jesus is going out and gathering more and more into his family. But at the same time, like a fatally wounded dragon, the devil is trying to do as much damage as he possibly can to the people of this world and especially to the people of Christ. And that is what these verses are about, these final verses of this magnificent letter. They are a rousing call to arms. We've been told all that we need to know in the previous chapters, and now God's voice comes out to us to call each of us individually and together as a church to stand and fight. And his command to us this morning is precisely that, stand up and fight, because, point one, the battle is on. Look with me, please, to verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. God says to us this morning, Stand up and fight, because the battle is on. Christian, put your armor on, take up your weapon, because we are in the thick of a raging spiritual battle against an unseen but all-too-real enemy. Verse 11, the devil, and verse 12, his troops, the rulers and the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Paul tells us a number of key things about our enemy. First and basic but vital is that he is real. During the pivotal scene in the 1995 film, The Usual Suspects, feels like a long time ago now, Roger Kint, played by Kevin Spacey, says this. I wonder if you remember. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And that is spot on. The result of atheistic materialism which prevails in our society today isn't just that people don't believe in God, it is also that they do not believe in the presence of the devil. And what chance do people have against an enemy who has persuaded them that he does not exist? But God says to us, don't be so naive. Don't be deceived by the lie. He is real. He is real and he is dangerous. Verse 12, the rulers and authorities are the same rulers and authorities Christ has decisively triumphed over back in chapter 1, verse 21. Those who sit under his feet, crushed and defeated. Satan's forces have been defeated, but that does not mean that he isn't dangerous. As we said, he is a wounded beast who wants to do everything he possibly can before it is too late. 
Verse 12 tells us that between now and Christ's return, we are in this unrelenting fight against the devil. And the word that is used in verse 12 is wrestle. That is to say, we're not in a drone warfare fought from an air-conditioned room thousands of kilometers away from our opponent. Now, this is hand-to-hand combat in a muddy battlefield where you can smell the stench of the enemy. He is real, he is dangerous, and he is deceptive. Verse 11, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The schemes, the tricks, the deceptive strategies. In other words, the devil is not a gentleman. He does not play by the rules. Jesus says he is a liar and the father of lies. You might have heard of C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. You might have read it. It is brilliant. It's an imaginary series of letters from somebody called Screwtape, who was a senior devil, to his nephew Wormwood, a novice devil. And it gives clever insights into the schemes of the devil. And replying to Wormwood at one point, who's very disappointed that he's only managed to tempt his target into unspectacular sins, Screwtape says this, Remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, that is God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And isn't that true? How many all around us have been lured in to the deceptive, false vision of the Australian dream, which is actually a devil-wrought deception leading people gradually down to the path to hell. And he will use anything and everything, good things, work and family life and money and retirement and achievements to distract us and our attention away from that which really matters eternity. Stand and fight, says God, to each of us and to all of us together because the battle is on, the battle in which the enemy is real, is dangerous and deceptive. I imagine most of us are sitting there and nodding our heads in agreement, but honestly thinking, well, it is very, very hard. In fact, if I'm honest, too hard. The enemy is too strong and I'm too weak and there is no way that I can stand. And of course you would be right. The enemy is too strong and you are too weak and there is no way that you can stand on your own. But God's message in this passage is that we are not on our own. He is with us. God says stand and fight Because one, the battle is on, but also you can and you will win because the Lord is strong. The battle is on, but the Lord is strong. And the first thing to recognize is that we have been given the Lord's power. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I've got a group of friends 
in the UK, and one of the friends in that group used to get very excited about Tesla about 10 years ago, and he bought shares, and all of his mates kept on mocking him about this company that he was betting his, his savings on. Of course, who is laughing now? You can't go anywhere, it seems to me, around this area without seeing a Tesla. They are brilliant machines, but they are, of course, useless without power. Christian, you are useless like a Tesla without power. Useless in the battle. We have no resources in ourselves, but there is power that is available, that has been made available to us, that belongs to the Lord. The strength of his might, verse 10, Christ's might. In fact, again, exactly the same words Paul used back in chapter 1, verse 19, when he was speaking about that death-conquering, life-giving power that God used and unleashed to raise Jesus from the dead. How extraordinary that is. What Paul is saying in verse 10 goes way beyond plugging yourself into a power socket. It's the truth that we are in the Lord, the Lord Jesus. We are his body. And therefore, the same spiritual power, the resurrection power that rose Jesus, raised him from the dead, is available to us and at work in us if we will receive it. Be strong in the Lord, which could equally be translated, be strengthened in the Lord. That is, God is not calling us to conjure up strength from inside us. That's hopeless. No, be strengthened with the resurrection power of a Christ to fight in this battle. Stand and fight because the battle is on. And you can because the Lord is strong. You have his power, but also you have been given his armor. And that is what Paul has been repeating over and over again. Look with me to verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. And again in verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand. It's a simple but obvious point. The armor is not our armor, it's the armor of God. The divine spiritual resources that belong to him but now have been given to us because we are in Christ. And this beautiful, powerful image from verse 14 onwards is the image of a warrior getting dressed for battle, putting on his armor before going out to war. And we had the reading from Isaiah 59 because that is one of the key pieces of background. Isaiah 59, when the Lord God looks out into the world and sees the injustice of the world and looks around to see if anyone will fight for him and realizes, no, there is no one, so I will go out and defeat the injustice and sin of this world and my enemies. But not just Isaiah 59, Isaiah 11, where there it is the Christ, the Messiah, God's chosen king, who is dressed for battle and will slay the Lord's enemies. And the wonderful thing is that in the Lord Jesus Christ, both of these prophecies have come to life. Jesus, who is the Lord, the warrior, and who is the king, the Messiah, who defeats his enemies. And because we are his body, as we've been learning in Ephesians, we are now part of that battle. We are part of the warfare. We're going to look briefly now at each of those bits of armor, but it's very important we don't lose the main point amidst the imagery. As we've been saying, we do not have resources in and of ourselves. 
The point is that God has given us the armor, the resources we need. And all of these images really can be summed up in the truth of the gospel that we've been learning about in Ephesians. All that Christ has done for us. And to put on the armor is to know that, to believe that, and to depend on him for that so that we can fight. And so let's launch in. In verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. The belt of truth. And the truth has been what Paul has been going on about over and over again in this letter. That is reality. What's been unveiled for us through the gospel. Remember, of course, the devil is the liar, the father of lies. That's how he attacked our first parents. You will not surely die. Lies are his weapon, and his aim is to damage us and eventually to kill us. And that is, of course, what lies do. Lies don't just live in our heads. They change our lives. And lives that are damaged by lies, lies damage our lives because they prevent us from living according to what is real. You imagine your older brother tells you that Tabasco sauce, this is when you're a bit younger, by the way, Tabasco sauce is sugar sauce that makes everything sweet and it tastes amazing and you, you receive it and you get out your wheat bix and you, you pour, it, pour it all on. You believe the lie and the damage is done. And that is what our world is doing today and always, believing the lies, thinking it will be delicious to go against God, but then actually it is profoundly damaging. In fact, deadly. Lies and the sin that follows is to live against reality. The philosopher H.H. H. Farmer said, when you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. And that is what is happening today. And may I say, that is why we are so interested in, may I say, obsessed with the truth as this church. Everything we do in our gatherings here at St. Thomas's has the truth of God's word at the very center. We're about getting the truth into us, speaking the truth to one another in love, reading the truth, memorizing the truth, studying the truth for ourselves so that our lives are soaked in the truth so that we will live according to reality and not live according to a phantom, the belt of truth. And verse 14, having put on the belt of truth, we put on the breastplate of righteousness. Satan in Hebrew means accuser. Devil in Greek means slanderer. And the key weapon, the key lie of the devil that he attacks us with is that we are not worthy and acceptable to God. He discourages us and seeks to take us out of the battle. But we need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness which comes to us through the Lord Jesus and his gospel. The news that our sins have been forgiven because Christ took them and paid for them on the cross. That we've been declared righteous before God. That when he looks upon us, he sees us as Christ. Christ in all of his righteousness. His righteousness as a gift to us, not our own. And therefore, with that, we can combat the lies of the evil one. And know that Christ does accept us. God does love us. God looks upon us and is pleased. And we can engage in the battle. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and verse 15, as shoes for our feet, 
having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Again, back in the second half of chapter 2, it was the gospel that brought peace between us and God and between us and each other. And we are to put on that gospel as shoes. Apparently the Roman soldiers used to have shoes that also had studs in them, a little bit like rugby boots. Therefore, these shoes enable us, the gospel enables us to stand when we're being pushed back, but also to go forward and to rescue others. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith. Verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Grunch's shield was about this big. The shield that's being spoken of there is actually a one meter by one meter kind of shield which the Romans used to have and which they used to hide behind to avoid the flaming darts that were being shot by archers from across the field. It covered the whole person It enabled you to hide right behind it. And it was soaked in water so that when those arrows, which had been dipped in bitumen, were flying across, they would hit the shield and they would be extinguished. And Satan comes with his accusations, his arrows that are flying through the air. And as we come into church, he whispers to us, you hypocrite, God knows how you spoke to your wife or husband this morning. Hold up the shield of faith singed. No, I'm forgiven. I've been justified. God accepts me and loves me. Another flaming dart coming across the horizon. I know your internet history. I see what no one else sees. Yet again, no, I'm righteous in Christ. I have been forgiven. And so on and so forth. The belt of truth, the blessed trait of righteousness, the gospel of peace as our shoes, the shield of faith, and the helmet of salvation. Charles Hodge, the theologian, said, That which adorns and protects the Christian, which enables him to hold up his head with confidence and joy, is the fact that he is saved. We are able to stand when we know and believe that it doesn't depend on us, that presently, right now, We have been seated in the heavenly places, that we are saved. And with that knowledge, we can stand and fight. And finally, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword here, not a long medieval blade, but a short dagger kind of thing that is used in close combat, used for defense. You remember the Lord Jesus when Satan came with his temptations But Jesus at each point, no, it is written, it is written, it is written, defending himself against the temptations of Satan. But also it is the one offensive weapon, the word of God, the sword of the spirit, the powerful sword of the spirit. Whenever God's word is heard, God the spirit is at work in power. Think about that for a moment. The same word that caused this whole creation to come into existence, that raised Jesus from the dead, is the same word that we hear from the scriptures, that we speak to each other. It has that kind of power. Not just the great apostle Paul or the great evangelist who stands up the front. Each individual, each of us, with that word on our lips. It's the little toddler speaking to her granny, telling her all that she's learnt about Jesus in Tom's thumbs and asking her, does she believe in 
the Lord Jesus, the Spirit of God at work in power, even there. And finally, we are told to pray. Verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Did you notice that prayer is not actually described as a weapon here? And I take it that is because prayer is to undergird and to permeate and to be there in every aspect of the armor that Paul has been speaking about. The armor, all of it is an expression of dependence upon God's strength. And of course, that is what prayer is in essence. Prayer is to depend not on ourselves, but to ask God for his resources. And did you notice four times the word all? We are to pray at all times, that is regularly and constantly, with all prayer and supplication, prayer taking many forms, the arrow prayer as you go into a meeting, prayer with others after church or in a prayer partnership, prayer as part of our daily Bible reading, prayer together in church, prayer in our prayer meetings, with all perseverance. That is, prayer is hard work, making supplication for all the saints, not just ourselves and our own families and our own church, but for all of God's people across the world who are together engaged in this battle. To pray is to dress yourself in the armor of God. What terrifies the devil most of all is the Christian on his or her knees. When we pray... We're in the front line of the battle. God's call to us this morning is to stand and fight. I'm so excited about the baptism that we're about to see. And we are together going to charge John with these words. Fight bravely under God's banner against the sin, the world, and the devil. And continue Christ's faithful soldier and servant to the end of your life. VE Day is coming soon, when we can lay down our weapons and the dancing will begin. But what will we do in the meantime? Lie down and give up or stand and fight? No space for being naive or lackadaisical. The stakes are too high and the danger is too great. But we can fight with confidence because... The battle is on, but the Lord is strong. He has given us his power. He has given us his armor. By ourselves there is no hope, but with him we have triumphed. May each of us and we together hear his command and do as he says. Verse 10, St. Thomas's, Be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil and having done all, to stand firm. Let's pray. We pray, our Heavenly Father, that we would not be naive, that we would see things as they truly are, that we would know the truth, that we would believe it, and that we would live it. We pray that each one of us here in this room
this morning would be standing on that final day. And that together now, between now and your return, we would be your warriors for your gospel and for your kingdom. Amen.